Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, in the latest chapter of the conversation around sexual harassment and abuse, two Democratic politicians are now under fire. Former Vice President of the United States, Joe Biden, is addressing several women's accusations that he inappropriately touched them. And Virginia's Lieutenant Governor, Justin Fairfax, is denying allegations that he sexually assaulted two women. Where do each of these recent events fit in the context of the ongoing reckonings of Me Too? And what do they say more broadly about the cultural shifts beyond this moment? Later in the show, women's roles in society is at the heart of the novel about prideful Elizabeth Bennet and the arrogant Mr. Darcy, characters author Jane Austen brought to life over 200 years ago in her 19th century romance, Pride and Prejudice. But the story has found new audiences today in books that retell it for contemporary times. Two authors, two re-envisionings of Pride and Prejudice, all set far from the English countryside, unmarriageable Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, and Aisha at last, our double April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. But first, here to help us break down these latest Me Too controversies, Koa Beck, Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government's Shorenstein Center, where she is working on a forthcoming book on white feminism. Hello, Koa. Hello, Callie. I want everybody to know that you've been writing about gender, culture, and race for a very long time, uh, and Me Too specifically uh, as the former editor-in-chief uh, of the online magazine Jezebel, and also as the Me Too commentator for the radio program The Takeaway. So you are well-versed in Me Too issues and in gender issues in general. So when you started hearing from the story about Lucy Flores, that's the woman who came forward and said that former Vice President Joe Biden kissed her hair mm -hmm. and moved in inappropriately on her. She is a member of the Nevada State Assembly. And she was quite startled about it, did not respond at the time, but came out recently feeling that if he's going to run for president, I need mm -hmm. to say something. Mm -hmm. um, and it then sparked six other women to come forward saying, recalling other inappropriate details, and here we are. Uh, it also led to Joe Biden's making a video statement, and this is uh, his statement addressing allegations that he touched these women inappropriately. Social norms have begun to change, they've shifted, and the boundaries of protecting personal space have been reset. And I get it. I get it. I hear what they're saying. I understand it. And I'll be much more mindful. That's my responsibility. My responsibility, and I'll meet it. And let's take a listen to Lucy Flores in her own words. She's This is the State of the Union program with Jake Tapper when she responded to Joe Biden's statement addressing her allegations. I'm glad that he's willing to listen. I'm, I'm glad that he is clarifying his intentions. Frankly, my point 
was never about his intentions and they shouldn't be about his intentions. It should be about the women on the receiving end of that behavior. And that's where I want to start, Koa, intentions. You know, that's driving me crazy that he said intentions in his statement and people are like, well, he apologized. And and uh, why should he be uh, penalized? Because it, that wasn't his intention. I think broadly with the example of Joe Biden, but also when we look across the spectrum of abuses, harassment, rape, intentionality is actually a really flimsy lens by which to analyze how systemic these actions are. I think that the um, way that male privilege often operates within our culture, it affords this luxury of intention in the first place. And when we start there in understanding a lot of these abuses and harassment, too, it basically gives... um, I think that when we start to analyze this through intentionality, it cuts out a lot of very important dynamics to this, such as the power dynamic in which Lucy Flores is not able to articulate to a man who is much more senior than her that this makes her uncomfortable. And that's really what needs to be at the focus of this, not so much what he intended to do or not do. And, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, I'd just like to remind people. <laughs> so I think she, her point is so well taken that is it's really not about his intentions, it's about how I received it. Now, I get it that he's a warm and friendly person. And, you know, from my vantage point of never having met the man or know him, that comes across. But it's if the woman did not invite you into the space, then we have something else going on. Yeah, I think uh, what intentionality obscures is entitlement. Um, However that operates, even within men you love, men who you have respected, men who have supported and advocated policies that you've supported, um, men who you have voted for, there's still a lack of awareness and an entitlement, however you are conscious or not conscious of that, to step into women's space to operate around women's bodies without having that type of awareness. I think a good way to check this is if you contrast, say, um, men overstepping certain boundaries or, you know, on another spectrum, abusing, you know, certain physical spaces. Contrast that with the awareness that a lot of women have from the minute they walk outside their homes to when they return or the ways in which they have to constantly be mindful of their surroundings, whether they're with other people, whether they're not with other people, if it's dimly lit, if there's people there who will know them. This is a very gendered way of operating in the world. I think also, too, one of the things that was really telling to me in metabolizing the Biden um, allegations and then just discussing them with other women in my life and especially other colleagues is that so many women and other um, people in my life of marginalized genders have a shorthand for exactly this dynamic with Joe Biden. And they referred to it as the creepy uncle. And I think the fact that so many women I know, and especially women online, have a shorthand for that exact dynamic, a man who you love, who uh, you support, who is crossing a physical boundary with you, but who you are not in that exact instance identifying a sexual threat, but still makes you uncomfortable, speaks to how systemic this type of behavior is. Um, And I think another big part of Me Too and the continued conversation around harassment and gendered abuse is that it will inevitably involve 
men who are close to us and men who are politically aligned with us. It's never particularly shocking to me when it comes out that, you know, a man who is democratic or is liberal identified um, has also abused or overstepped a boundary with a woman. That is never shocking to me. And I feel like a lot of times on the right, the way this is um, framed and presented is that because it's identified on the liberal side as well, it therefore just disintegrates it as a legitimate issue, which is very sloppy thinking to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, in actually understanding and in some ways dismantling some of these behaviors, our fathers, our brothers, our sons, our mentors, our bosses um, will be invoked in this. And I think we should emotionally prepare for that, but also strategically prepare for that as well. I think another framework that is not helpful too that um, I've seen, it, it started as as early, if, if we're keeping this specifically within the framework mm-hmm. of Me Too, it started with um, Weinstein and it continues now where... Harvey Weinstein. Uh, yeah, Harvey Weinstein, mm-hmm. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, in that there is now a pattern with the way these allegations play out with social media in that an allegation comes out, again, along a spectrum of abuses or harassment. And then there is a rush of women who say on social media, mm-hmm. um, this man did not violate me and therefore it is inconceivable that he would ever violate anyone else. And that is a very limited and unhelpful framework to understand this. That's actually not how abuse works. And that alone, I think, distills a very limited understanding of gender within our culture. And that Let's hear some of these women, because sure. you're right, uh, right away. Um, Joey Behar on The View, in fact, all the women on The View, that's an ABC television show, came out and defended Joe Biden, um, as well as Mika Brzezinski. So I'm going to listen, want us to listen to both of these cuts. First, Joy Behar on The View. I don't think it rises to the to point what we've been listening to about Harvey Weinstein and the rest of these people. It just doesn't look like that. And, you know, we all know Joe Biden. He's been here. And, you know, so he talks close. He h- touches he's you. That's he's what a... he's like. And I feel it would be really unfortunate if we got rid of everybody who was just an affectionate kind of person. All right. Then last uh, Friday, Mika Brzezinski, she had been all week uh, supporting uh, Joe Biden and she doubled down on it, uh, saying that this just should not be a part of Me Too. But this is what she said about her her worries about uh, Vice President Biden and the Me Too movement on MSNBC's uh, show Morning Joe. And I don't think Me Too wants to take down viable candidates for being affectionate, but not sexual in their contact with women. This is not the line we want to draw. So, uh, Koa Beck, my guest, Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. Um, I am just so annoyed by this, <laughs> I have to tell you, because um, I like. there's so many guys I like, and I've been disappointed when I've heard mm-hmm. uh, and these things have come out. But we we, we're giving them cover, and mm-hmm. we can't. We weren't there when these other women were there, and just because you weren't comfortable doesn't mean they were. Uh, another common pattern <laughs> that I think has arisen within uh, the media becoming more allegedly literate of gender and gender violence is there is this really sloppy framework of, in addition to what I said earlier. This has not been my experience, therefore it is an illegitimate experience. That is also not a helpful framework by which to understand abuse and harassment. I also feel like um, a lot of the comments that were just played in 
in asking women to, and people of other marginalized genders, to tier abuses, you are maintaining a system as it is, as mm. it currently presents and processes and arguably doesn't process abuse and harassment. And it's been my experience, I have to say. I am not an expert. I haven't studied this as long as you have. Um, but that, quote, inappropriate touching mm-hmm. that seems harmless to some people, the creepy uncle stuff, is the gateway mm-hmm. to the next stuff. I mean, that's been my experience. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe other people haven't had that, but I know that that to be true. Well, let's talk about um a sexual assault uh, in the news uh, mm-hmm. at this point, because this is Justin Fairfax is facing allegations of both rape and sexual assault. And I'm making the difference because one of the women, uh, Meredith Watson, has accused him of rape. She is very clear about the language that she is using. So I'm not putting that uh, in her mouth. This is what she said. And this is Meredith Watson recounting her sexual assault rape by Justin Fairfax when they were both students at Duke University in 2000. And you made it clear this is not what I want. It was very clear. Because you know he is saying this night was consensual. If you have to hold someone down, it's not consensual. That was Meredith Watson, who has accused uh, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax of rape. And uh, interviewing her in that moment was uh, Gail King from the uh, CBS uh, morning show. Um, And another woman has also stepped forward and said she described what she describes in their interaction as sexual assault that started out consensually and was not. To be clear, Meredith Watson, whom we just heard, said they were not in a sexual situation as she understood it. They were just together as friends, and then something changed, and there she was, and he raped her. Uh, so there are two, they're different situations, but both of them add up to some pretty serious um, accusations, both of which Justin Fairfax has denied. Um, so... And this has a lot of ramifications about it because Justin Fairfax is uh, black. He's a lieutenant governor. Remember, people may remember that the governor has been in trouble for blackface. So if he were to resign, which he did not, then lieutenant governor Justin Fairfax would step up into his role. So that's an added um, kind of complexity to this. But let's listen to Virginia Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax denying allegations of sexual assault. Many years ago, when I was 25 years old and Dr. Tyson was 28 years old, we had a consensual encounter. Years before that, when I was 21 years old and in college, I had a consensual encounter with Meredith Watson. So Dr. Tyson is the woman who's accused him of a sexual assault. Started off, just to be clear, she said it started off consensually and it changed. And she was clear about the change and he did not respond to that. Meredith Watson says it was rape. So we look at this and he's used uh, some volatile language, uh, Koa, in defending himself, saying he's being lynched, which, as we know, is is a quite provocative statement coming from anybody, but certainly coming from a black man uh, in Virginia. How do you respond to both his, what he has to say and what they've had to say. I think that when we are reading and understanding allegations of abuse, it's always important to look at not just who the predator is, but also who the victims are. And when Fairfax invokes a lynching narrative in the context of his statement, what he is evoking is that there's no, quote, due process. There's been no evaluation within the legal system. He is being seized by these allegations and is suffering consequences. And what he's alluding to is 
the very tortured and dark history of our country in which black men were accused of raping white women. And that was enough to basically have an entire town seize and lynch them. That's what he's invoking. What's troublesome to me when I hear that is that what's really being obscured in that narrative is that these alleged victims are black women. And black women have a very long history of being violated and also their needs being pushed aside under the men of their community. And there's been tremendous amount of black feminist scholarship that has explored this and what that is like in in real time. And for a lot of black women historically in this country, their relationship to feminism, social justice, and also rape culture is really fraught with this in that they understandably do not want to see the men who they are aligned with under um, racialized violence, under systemic racism, being uh, necessarily persecuted under a racist system. At the same time, that system is not made for them or mm-hmm. their predators to that effect. And And I think that in invoking that, he is really obscuring the um, backgrounds of his victims and that there is such a long history of men doing this. Now, he has uh, claimed to have taken several lie detector tests, which he said he's happy to make public, um, that's uh, supposed to exonerate him. But the state actually doesn't know what to do at this moment. They're sort of frozen. They don't know whether to go forward with any hearings, which both the women would like to have, Mm -hmm. a public hearing, or just sort of let it go away. I mean, I don't, I, and I don't know what's going to happen. It's a very weird um, situation because there's politics at play here as mm-hmm. well. Um, should should both the governor and he, or just he, step down, it becomes a, a seat potentially for a Republican, and he he's Democrat, as is the governor. So there's a layer of that on top of it as well. And some people say there's a layer of politics on top of the Vice sure. President Biden thing as well. So how do you assess that? What's missing in the, as we view this? And, um, and you know, as I look around and the, and the people like the R. Kellys and the Bill Cosby's, you know, these are all black men. They've gotten quite a bit of attention. Mm-hmm. Uh, the one conviction has gone to the black man, Bill Cosby. Mm-hmm. Harvey Weinstein, I mean, he's been accused, but nothing's happened to him. There's a few other white men who've mm-hmm. uh, obviously lost their jobs. So it's kind of it's a complex w- situation to look at. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I agree. I think that um, this is in, in the case of Fairfax specifically, I think this is where intentionality uh, also doesn't work for us in that uh, him taking these lie detector tests does not necessarily prove or, or disprove anything. What that proves, if you believe in the validity of these tests, is that he does not believe that he violated these women. And amongst a lot of sexual assault reporting and statistics, that's not really a, a viable uh defense against having not violated somebody. It just means that you didn't believe you were. And again, this is where intentionality falls apart. That's not really central to what's being argued here. I also think that in Fairfax's statement, another piece that he's getting to is that if we pull back, Me Too, this iteration of Me Too, has been in response to the fact that the the standardized channels that are supposed to adequately deal with rape, assault, harassment, 
do not fundamentally mm-hmm. work, whether that's HR programs, our legal system, um, tutorials within you know certain institutions in which sexual harassment is taught. None of these work. And so the response of Me Too was a critique of that system. Within that, uh, Fairfax is fairly invoking a certain piece of history, but he's also defending a certain system, mm-hmm. which doesn't necessarily work because that system is also deeply racist. So I feel like it's a very misguided uh, metaphor that he's trying to draw. So how do we uh, look at these two most recent cases um, in the whole landscape of Me Too? And and is there anything positive that's that has come out of this in terms of our evolution um, of how we regard these cases? I think that the analysis of really beloved men in our society, you know, whether it's with Bill Cosby, who previously had this, you know, really exalted place in our society, um, or Joe Biden, I think that is helpful for actually seeing systemic abuse and harassment and rape for what it is. It uh, is concerning to me that within the coverage of Joe Biden, among all the clips that you played, there is a a privilege that is afforded to him in that he is white. He has been a big advocate of anti-violence against women and initiatives. And so there is an extension that Mm -hmm. is almost allowed to him, which I I think is very wrapped up in both white privilege, but also the fact that he's been very inoculated as this liberal identified man. And I don't agree with that. But I think in the case of Fairfax, given that he is mandating that these were consensual encounters and clearly these women have an entirely different account of what happened, I am very interested to see Me Too move more in a nuanced direction under the umbrella of quote-unquote bad sex. And that's Mm -hmm. another shorthand that I've heard um, women and people of other marginalized genders use a lot pre-Me Too, and I feel like there hasn't been enough reporting that's effectively moved into that. Um, I know so what many. What do you mean pe- by that, by the way? I I know so many people mm-hmm. who uh, who are generally women who have experiences that they just deem bad sex, mm-hmm. and it's not something that they're willing to quantify or assign rape to, probably for a variety of factors, but it's nevertheless something that has made them feel uncomfortable or violated or something was overstepped in an otherwise consensual sexual encounter that was not. And so I think parsing out the dynamics under bad sex will be a very nuanced and good next tier to this movement. And it obviously needs to be part of a public discussion. I just wanted to add that it it was so odd to me. The other night I was at an event, celebratory event, with people, some people I knew, but most I did not know. And this guy just came over to me and in one second said, oh, I don't, I don't, I don't shake hands because I extended my hand. And I am a hugger. And yeah. I am embraced in, and listen, I'm not somebody who can't stand up for herself. And I thought in that moment, oh, my God. I am literally having the inappropriate moment. And mm-hmm. in the wake of all of this, are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so so I have the choice. Do I make a scene or not? So I'm glad these conversations are are happening so that people mm-hmm. understand inappropriate is not, you know, something we can just dismiss. It really isn't. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and I think also continuing to look at this mm-hmm. as being just in or about sex is also not helpful. Um, Rebecca Traster wrote some really good pieces about this in 2017, about how this is not about sex. This is about power. That's good. That's exactly right. And uh, and that cannot be, be said enough. Well, 
Kobeck, I really appreciate your sitting down to give us a, a broader overview and some insight, your powerful insight into these latest. And I'm sorry to say, I know it, it, they are the latest. There will be more and we'll have to have another conversation about it. But I thank you for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Kelly. Um, I'm so delighted. Koa Beck is a Joan Shorenstein Fellow at the Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, where she is working on a forthcoming book on white feminism. Coming up, Jane Austen has more readers than many of the most popular novelists writing today, which explains why legions of Pride and Prejudice fans can't get enough of Austen's original story, but also happily gobble up its many retellings. We've picked two of the latest versions for our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. Last year, American readers named Pride and Prejudice as one of the top five novels of all time for the PBS program, The Great American Read. That's not a surprise for the millions of Jane Austen fans, like me, who consider that novel a particular favorite and are not ashamed to admit we've seen all the movie versions of it many times over. So it's no mystery that we'd also be drawn to novels reimagining the story of the feisty Elizabeth Bennet and brooding Mr. Darcy. Darcy for these days and times. I was delighted to discover two of the latest versions and have selected both books as our collective April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. I'm even more delighted to welcome the two authors, Sonia Kamal, author of Unmarriageable Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. Welcome, Sonia. Thank you so much, Callie, for having me on. And I'm delighted. Also, Uzma Jalaluddin, author of Aisha at Last. Welcome to you. Thank you, Kelly. So happy to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have both of you because, as I've said, I'm a big Jane Austen fan, and I certainly am a big Pride and Prejudice fan, and clearly the two of you are as well. So first, uh, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Let's start with why Pride and Prejudice as a starting point for you, because we're going to get into both your books, but just what about this book spoke to you even before you thought about uh, reimagining it? Sonia? Yes. Uh, you know, I first read this cover to cover when I was 16. And as soon as I finished reading it, it seemed the most, like I, like I say, Jane Austen did not know that she was Pakistani. Um, and I'm originally <laughs> from Pakistan. And, um, and as soon as I finished it, it, it was just, it was and is the most quintessential Pakistani novel. I mean, it's about a mother desperate to get her five unmarried daughters, not just married, but married well. And, um, you know, there are few things more Pakistani than that, or or, I, or dare I say, in many cultures, not just Pakistan, but, you know, which is why I think Austin just resonates with everyone everywhere. <laughs> Uzma, same for you. Why uh, Pride and Prejudice? How did it resonate with you before you ever thought about uh, reimagining it? No, it's funny. I actually read Pride and Prejudice when I was 16 years old as well. And I do think the stories that you read when you're young just stay with you because my my path to Pride and Prejudice is a little bit different from Sonia's. I didn't know I was writing a Pride and Prejudice remake until I was about three drafts into Aisha at last. 
And uh, another writer friend pointed it out to me. And I, I think it's something about those subconscious, you know, stories that have this pull on you. And uh, and then when I realized, I really leaned into it. Uh, but for me, it was, I didn't even know. It was just, but, but I, I agree with Sonia. I think that um, the story has a timeless quality to it that really appeals to a lot of the uh, the diaspora of uh, South Asians. De- definitely. You know, and, and I think for me also, growing up in Pakistan, in, in a post-colonial country, in the English medium school system, um, in the English language where reading British literature was what we did and was so important, for me very much, um, I wanted to, there was nothing when I was growing up that was written in English but set in Pakistan. And it was something I was so desperate myself to just read and um, just give myself, you know, like uh, Terry McMillan's famous line about if, if you if you want to read something and it's not out there, then write it yourself or something like that. I just took that to heart and, and decided, you know, I wanted to read Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. And that's what I decided to do. So there's a cast of characters in Jane Austen's story. Um, There is Elizabeth Bennet. There is Mr. Darcy that we think of as the two main characters. There's Charles Charles Bingley is Mr. Darcy's friend. George Wickham is the bad guy. William Collins is this sort of hapless guy trying to get somebody to marry him. Um, (laughs) Then there's Mr. Darcy's aunt, Lady Catherine de Bourgh, the sister Catherine Bingley of Charles, and Georgiana Darcy, who's the sister of Mr. Darcy. So I just wanted to lay out those are the characters for people who might not have read the book. And now I want the two of you to tell me about your particular Elizabeth Bennet and Mr. Darcy. So I'll start with you, Sonia, again. Tell me who Elizabeth Bennet is in your story and who Mr. Darcy is. Okay. So mine, um, Unmarriageable, is a contemporary retelling. It's set in uh, 2000, 2001, and I set it in those years for a particular reason, too, um, to showcase some another aspect of Austen. But my um, Elizabeth Bennet, no, uh, called Alice Binnett, is, um she's a school teacher. And she is a very progressive woman who has decided that not only she doesn't want to get married, and she does not want children. Um, she doesn't think that anyone would ever be able to respect her very progressive and bold personality. And she just doesn't want to settle, which is what her mother would happily have her do. And um, she teaches uh, high school English literature. And as she says in the, the very first sentence, she reminds uh, some of her students that Romeo and Juliet is actually a sad love story because Juliet is 13 and Romeo 16 and really they should have been concentrating on other things than love at this point and they might not have ended up the way they did. So she's got very progressive ideas. Um, my uh, Mr. Darcy who is Valentine Darcy and Valentine actually I got that idea to call him Valentine from Oprah. Actually, because, um, yeah, because Oprah was actually supposed to be named Harpo after a biblical character. But there was a snafu on her birth certificate and it was misspelled and became Oprah. And by the time anyone realized it, it was what it was. And I was always so fascinated by this story about being named and being maybe accidentally named and yet claiming that name and what that means to identity and so many other aspects of our life. Because our names are literally the first things that we present to people pretty much. Even now on air, you, no one can see us, but you you, you used our names. So um, And I wanted to do something like that with Val. 
Valentine. And also, come on, Valentine is Mr. Darcy. <laughs> what could be, for me, it was like perfect. But his mother wanted to, she was a huge Rudolph Valentino fan, and she wanted to name him Valentino. But, you know, on the birth certificate, they made a mistake, and so <laughs> Valentine it was. So, yeah, and he's actually the owner of the school system, turns out, that Alice Binneth is working at. And, you know, so the tension for them is very much book-related and what reading means and what reading uh, indigenous cultural literature versus uh, literature of the world internationally means. So they, they bond and don't over these things. So I would love to have you to read uh, a section about Alice so we get early on a sense of who she is. Sure. So this is from chapter one. Um, it's set in a classroom and Alice is thinking about the students sitting in front of her, the, uh, her girls. Yet it always upset her that young, brilliant minds, instead of exploring the universe, were busy chiseling themselves to fit into the moulds of Mrs. and Mom. It wasn't that she was averse to Mrs. Mom, only that none of the girls seemed to have ever considered travelling the world by themselves, let alone been encouraged to do so, or to shatter a glass ceiling, or laugh like a madwoman in public without a care for how it looked. At some point over the years, she'd made it her job to inject or, as some, like Rosnama's mother would say, infect, her students with possibility. And even if the girls in this small, sleepy town refused to wake up, wasn't it her duty to try? How grateful she'd have been for such a teacher. Instead, she and her sisters had also been raised under their mother's motto to marry young and well, an expectation neither 30-year-old Alice nor her elder sister, 32-year-old Jenna, had fulfilled. In the year 2000, in the lovely town of Dilipabad, in the lovelier state of Punjab, women like Alice and Jenna were, as far as their countrymen and women were concerned, certified Miss Havishams, Charles Dickens' famous spinster who'd wasted away her life. Actually, Alice and Jenna were considered even worse off, for they had not enjoyed Miss Havisham's good luck of having at least once been engaged. As Alice watched, the class swarmed around Thyra, wishing out loud that they too would be blessed with such a ring and begin their real lives. And, and I just want to I just want to quickly add my voice changes accents because I've grown up in several different countries and it code switches. And the first um, language and accent I learned to read in was in England. So it just automatically switches to that when I read out loud. Oh, no problem. That's my guest, Sonia Kamal. She's author of Unmarriageable, Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, and she's reading from the early chapters of that book. Now, over to you, Uzma. In Aisha, um, who also is a teacher, as it turns out, in, in your book, uh, which That's is right. a, a set in Toronto, but I want you to describe who Aisha is, who in this case is your Elizabeth Bennett, and who Mr. Darcy is in your book, Aisha at Last. Sure. In Aisha at Last, my Elizabeth Bennett character, I imagined her as a uh, passionate, fiery, spoken word poet who has dreams of pursuing her art, uh, and yet as a the daughter of, uh, of immigrants and as an immigrant herself from India, she has to settle into her life and put down roots like so many children of immigrants and immigrants have to do uh, and, and get a day job. So she settles on becoming a substitute high school teacher and uh, with the hopes of becoming a permanent high school teacher. And the book sort of opens up with her 
in this precarious position where she's been looking for work and she's finally settled on it. And uh, in the very beginning of the book, we follow her through her very first day as a high school teacher. And she has a bit of a disconnect. My Mr. Darcy character, on the other hand, I decided to take a different tack with, with him. Mr. Darcy in Pride and Prejudice is this aristocratic man who looks down his nose. Uh, for me, I sort of used it as a way to deconstruct what a Muslim man, a very typical conservatively dressed Muslim man, uh, looks like and is perceived by others. So my Khalid character, he walks around with a long white robe called a thobe, uh, and he wears a, a skull cap on his head. He has a very long beard that has never been shaved. And he looks like a scary Muslim guy, you know, someone who would appear on a thriller on TV. And yet at heart, he's a romantic, he's gentle, and he's looking for love. So those are my Mr. Darcy and my Elizabeth Bennett characters from Aisha I Last. And I would like you to read uh, a little bit from the first part of your book, Aisha at Last. So I'm going to be reading from the very beginning of the book, and this is Aisha's very first day at, at a high school. And uh, it's funny, I, I, I myself am I'm, I'm a high school teacher, and this is um, inspired by something that happened to me on one of my first days. And Aisha walks into the classroom and is overwhelmed by the experience, and the students take one look at her and are just not having it. You know, the minute a substitute teacher comes to school, it's okay, that's it, all bets are off. So she actually kind of panics and runs away from the class. I never did that, but she did. So here's the book. 40 minutes later, Aisha crouched on the toilet in the staff bathroom, bookended by feelings of self-pity and guilt. Instead of teaching, she was hiding from her class. Even worse, she was writing a poem in her purple spiral notebook. I can't do this, this thing that I should do. I can do this, this thing I don't want to do. I want to be away, weaving words of truth, not here, trapped between desk and freedom and family. She should be teaching, not writing. She had vowed to leave this part of her behind when she'd left for work that morning. Instead, she hadn't been able to resist placing the purple spiral notebook in her bag, like a child security blanket. She gripped her pen tightly and tried not to stare at her cell phone. Come on, Clara, she said out loud. Then she held her breath, hoping no one had heard. But of course they hadn't. This was the staff bathroom, and it was the middle of the school day. The other teachers were teaching, not hiding, and writing poetry. She squinted at the page, rereading her words. Correction. Writing bad poetry. Her phone beeped. A text message from her best friend, Clara. What do you mean you can't do this? You just got there. Aisha texted back. My class hates me. They were throwing things at each other, and they didn't listen to a word I said. Can you call the school and tell them there's an emergency at home? Her phone rang. You picked the wrong profession. Clara's voice was low. I'll come back to teach tomorrow when I'm ready, Aisha said. Babe, you are never going to be ready to teach. You know what you're ready for? Writing poems, exploring the world, falling in love. Remember? That is my guest, Uzma Jalaluddin, and she's the author of Aisha at Last, which is another reimagining of Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. So why was it important for both of you to set this story in contemporary times? You could have been in Toronto a long time ago, or you could have <laughs> been in Pakistan a long time ago. Uh, but it was important to have recognizable modern contemporary amenities, lifestyles for all of your characters. Why? I'll start with you, Uzma. I really wanted to capture what it's like to be a, a young Muslim person living in a Western country like Canada right now. And I was using 
Jane Austen's story, the framework of the story as a, as a way for readers to have an entry point into a community that they probably weren't very familiar with in a lot of cases. What I really wanted to tackle was issues of identity and also what is it like for young Muslims, conservative young Muslims who who are observant Muslims to to fall in love and to, to marry and what sorts of things are going through their heads. So uh, for me, it was important to to show how Muslims, young Muslims are living right now. Uh, I, I've always been fascinated by that and I, it's an authentic lived experience for me as well. Uh, same question to you, Sonia. Why contemporary times for unmarriageable pride and prejudice in Pakistan? Well, uh, to very much, um, I, I, I suppose several reasons, but here are two of the, the main ones. I very deliberately set it in the year 2000 and 2001. One of the few critiques that often comes up about Austen's works is that she did not bring um, the contemporary politics that she lived, the times that she lived in, into her work. I mean, she was, uh, the Napoleonic Wars were taking place. There was, um, you know, her cousin Eliza was married into French aristocracy and um, her husband was guillotined. And so Austen was very, very much aware. Her brothers were sailors in the Navy. So she was very much aware of what was going on around her, but she did not choose to bring those necessarily as huge um, plot points into her novels, although even in Pride and Prejudice, the militia is in town in Meryton, and that is such a huge uh, backdrop. You know, uh, Lydia Bennett is always visiting all the soldiers and stuff. Mr. Wickham is a soldier, and I wanted to mirror that for the contemporary reader. And, you know, as we we all know, a very, very big world event happened in 2001, and as I was writing this, in fact, one of my sections ends on August 2001, and I figured the reader will, some readers will now perhaps anticipate or expect you know, something that happened in the world to come up or at least make an appearance. And it doesn't. And this was my way of mirroring for contemporary readers what Austin chose to leave out and then what I also chose to leave out. And I did a lot of these subtext parallels also. So for me, it wasn't just a parallel retelling, which is hitting all the plot points, but very much doing this sort of stuff also to give this experience to a contemporary reader who might not get it. But then, you know, setting it in Pakistan for me was an absolute delight and a dream. As I mentioned, when I was growing up, there was nothing in English said in Pakistan, so very much that. But also, you know, often, too often, um, sometimes all we know of other countries is what we see on the TV, be it news headlines, little blips, or what we, you know, we don't get a 360-degree picture of any country. I remember when I was growing up in Pakistan in the 1980s, I would see um, American soap operas like Dynasty or Baywatch, and, you know, for and I visited the U.S., so I knew there was a lot more to it than just you know, women in red bikinis on the beach. But for people who had not necessarily visited here, that's all they would think. They would think all of America, every single inch of it, is just Baywatch and Dynasty, Dallas soap operas, which is, you know, so far from the truth, as we know. And um, so very much I wanted to set Pakistan in the Pakistan that I grew up in, a Pakistan where women are, you know, doing so much. We have, as we know, a, a Nobel Prize uh, laureate, Malala Yousafzai. We've had a head of state, Benazir Bhutto. We've had so many accomplished women. Women in contemporary Pakistan are lawyers, bankers, doctors, oh, pilots, CEOs doing so much. And Pakistan is a, you know, women go, like my Alice um, Bennett and her sister Jenna, they go to an outdoors cafe, they sit there, they discuss their mother, they discuss guys. It's a very vibrant Pakistan. Of course, like all countries, all cultures, it has Mm. its issues and problems. But I wanted to very much set 
this also in a reality that I had loved and show a complete picture of Pakistan, not just to people not familiar with Pakistan, but very much for people within that culture, all Desis, as I like to say, you know, Pak- mm-hmm. people from the Indian subcontinent and, and otherwise. So. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Sonia Kamal, author of Unmarriageable, Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan, and Uzma Jalaluddin, author of Aisha at Last. And both of them are part of our selection for April for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar book club. So a couple of things. First of all, I think listeners should understand that there have been a number of reimaginings of Jane Austen's book. Uh, I just just did a little skim, and you know, for one, is Prom and Prejudice is one of them that has the title in it. Longborn is another one. Um, the Secret Diary of Lizzie Bennet. That's yet another. There are about twenty out there. So uh, yours are more recent. So that was why I was interested in both of your books because it's it's happening now and they just came out. But People seem to always go back to the foundation of the book, as you have done, and try to figure out ways in which to exploit some of the main themes of the book. And one of the main themes, of course, is class. Uh, But the two of you also pay attention to some other themes that I think are particular, perhaps, to your characters and the places and how they live. Colorism, I thought, was interesting in, in, in both books that it came up. And of course, the, the role of women and religion comes up a little bit in both of the books. So the role of women being like, you know, how, how educated should a woman be? Even in, even in these times, there's still pushback about that. So I thought it was interesting that you brought all those, those things together to sort of uh, make a distinct reimagining of the story. Uzma, as you were doing this and thinking about putting in some of those themes very subtly, but I got them, about colorism, for example. Um, why? Why was it important for you to make sure that readers understood what was happening there within the community? I think there's a real issue of colorism and shadism in the South Asian community. And I, I wanted to write a story that encompassed all of the practices that come into place when uh, a woman reaches her early 20s and uh, begins to engage in the marriage process. Uh, in the case of Aisha, Aisha is a uh, is a substitute teacher and a spoken word poet, my Elizabeth Bennett character. And her family is a little bit interesting. So without giving away any of the spoilers, Aisha lives in an extended family situation, which is very common in Toronto and, and also in other parts of the world. Basically, she lives with her grandparents and her mother and her younger brother. And her mother is a single mother, as I said, because her father died in India under mysterious circumstances. And her mother is a hardworking nurse. She came to Canada, trained as a nurse, and and is really, uh, I wanted to show what class looked like, as you said earlier, and show how hard it is for someone just starting off to make ends meet. So her mother has an interesting viewpoint on marriage that contrasts very much with um, some of the other family members in Aisha's family, her extended family. She thinks that Aisha should concentrate on her career, should not get married right away. There's no urgency in the situation at all. And she says this because she says you don't really know what the future will hold. In her case, she lost her husband when her children were very young, and that was a devastating blow for her. Aisha is also more darker skinned than her younger cousin, Hafsa. Uh, And Hafsa plays the, the role of Lydia Bennett in my book. She's young and flighty. She's also described in the book as being a beautiful young woman, one of the most attractive women 
in the neighborhood. And I purposely did this because in a lot of South Asian communities, there's rampant colorism and shadism. So if you read, for instance, this is um, kind of hilarious uh, thing that happens in some South Asian country, uh, South Asian cultures where young men and women have kind of like a marriage resume called a biodata. And uh, in the biodata, oftentimes, you know, the, the young man or the young woman's um, complexion is described. So it can be fair, weedish, which is sort of like a, a taupey color and, you know, all, all the different shades from there. So Hafsa is, is someone who is quite light skinned and this is seen as a prized uh, object and makes her very much desirable. And Khalid, I, I sort of imagined him as almost a lighter skinned man as well. And Aisha isn't. And I tried to be a little bit subtle in, in this because it, it is a rampant issue, but it's not something that I wanted to delve into too much. But Aisha definitely experiences a lot of comments from some of the older aunties like, oh, you're you're not as beautiful as your younger cousin. And a lot of that is directly related to the color of her skin. It is a problem and it causes a lot of issues in various circles. And Sonia, the same thing pops up in uh, your book, A Marriageable. Yeah, you know, and there is definitely colorism. In fact, um, Alice Bennett, on purpose, does something I used to do. I, uh, I I loved being tanned, and I would sit in the sun for hours growing up. And I would often have people say, oh, but you're going to get so dark. And I'd be like, yes, and I love that. And, um, and so I gave that characteristic to Alice. Uh, but, you know, uh, mine is like, uh, Unmarriageable is very much a parallel retelling. In fact, I don't know if there's actually any other parallel retelling out there to date. And so that means that my Mrs. Bennett, the Pinky Bennett, very much mirrors Mrs. Bennett in her concerns about wanting to get her daughters married off. And my Alice Bennett has her five sisters, and each of them sort of represent different issues that so many of us face every day. Kitty Bennett is um, like me. She's a heavier woman. She's fat. She's not particularly (laughs) tall. And, you know, and this was something I slowly came to own to and be perfectly happy and okay and um, absolutely delight in now and I wanted to explore but you know she gets a lot of lot of nasty comments as did I going growing up about why she wasn't on a diet why she didn't care about herself why she didn't focus on her look so much and one of the taglines for the book actually is for unmarriageable is um, books over looks so it's not that I discount looks or this is not an anti-marriage book but very much I wanted to bring up a lot of these issues that South Asian women definitely face every day in their lives. But I think women in all cultures and everywhere around the world face. So, you know, fat phobia and colorism and ageism for sure. You know, in the Muslim faith, actually, Prophet Muhammad's first wife, uh, Khadija, was 15 years old elder to her. And this is not something we tend to focus in a lot, but, you know, in the very first pages of my book, I bring that up because it so happens that my female leads, um, Elizabeth and Jane, are older than my Mr. Darcy and Mr. Bingley. So I wanted to bring in a lot of subversive things that at least I feel are subversive to the culture and still might not be a norm or still might be frowned upon. And, um, you know, my, my Lydia Bennett, who I named Lady, again, as a nod to Austin, because 
uh, her first novel, when she first started publishing, she never used the name Jane Austen, actually. Her first novel was published as By a Lady. So my Lady Bennett is a nod to that. But you know, Lady is, once again, as we see with Lydia also, uh, very feisty, flirts a lot. And in Pakistani culture and more conservative cultures, this can be a big issue, you know. And then with my Charlotte Lucas, who is Sherry, she's very old. She's 40. She's around 40, older, I think, 42. But she always makes her age. She always tells people she's five years younger because in Pakistani culture and South Asian culture, you sort of are automatically supposed to decrease your age so that you're able to stretch out your marriageable age more. And this was something growing up I detested. I mean, I would just (laughs) never do this. I was always in trouble because I would never do what was supposed to be done. I bought a lot of these traits into all of my characters just to discuss them within the book and show that you can still have a life and a very happy life, whether you're divorced in this culture, whether you're dark in this culture, whether you're an older woman in this culture. Um, you know, I, I tried to write as happy a book as I could, given these all these parameters. What I also like about both of the books is that you both celebrate literature. Not only are you writing a book, which of course celebrates literature, but within the context of both of your stories, Sonia in Unmarriageable, there are so many references to other books, which is really fascinating, so people can do that. And Uzma, in your book, there's all this poetry, and uh, (laughs) a lot of thought about poetry and what it means to your main character, Aisha. So it's really a celebration, not just in the story, but also in the context and in in the content of both of the stories, and I, I really appreciate appreciate that. Here's something else I appreciated that both of you do. There's a lot of food scenes. Oh my God, I was so hungry. (laughs) I was so hungry (laughs) reading both of these books. But of course, you did that because it's so much a part of the culture. Uzma, uh, talk about that if you would. Yeah, for the poetry, I'm a high school English teacher, and I love. I mean, I can I come by my love of language very early as a reader, and so I populated. I think when I was younger, I, I I wanted to write sort of like a Shakespearean, an ode to Shakespeare, and I even started writing this mystery series which incorporated Shakespeare and John Donne, and it was called Shakespeare Done It because I thought it was very clever. <laughs> it never went anywhere, but maybe one day it'll be resurrected. So when I started writing Aisha at last, I imagined. Aisha having a very close relationship to her nana, and that's her maternal grand grandfather who she lives with, uh, her, her both her grandparents. And her, the nana character is this wise, uh, retired English professor from Osmania University, which is a real university in Hyderabad, India, where my, my own family is from. And uh, my mom actually attended that university and did her master's there. And I really kind of pictured this grandfather who was always quoting Shakespeare. He's got a quote for every single occasion. And so I, the book is as much an ode to Shakespeare as it is an ode to uh, Pride and Prejudice. And at one point, Nana advises his, uh, his daughter, you know, live your life as if you're living in a comedy, not in a tragedy. Choose to live in a comedy, not in a tragedy. And the book sort of mir- mirrors some of... Shakespeare's tropes, which are often found in comedies. It ends in marriages, and there's a lot of farcical twists and mistaken identity and and things like that. And when it comes to the food part, you're right. I think food and eating and sharing food and cooking food is so much a part of South Asian culture. And I I know that in my house, in my, my mother's house, my aunt's and uncle's house, like the kitchen is the heart of the home. That's where all we, we commune, we, we gather together over meals, we share stories and we talk. And so much of the storytelling and the sharing of our culture happens over a meal. Even now, when I go visit my parents, 
even for if I just drop by, the first thing they do is they put on the kettle and they make some chai, which mm-hmm. is just tea. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it's it's such a part of it. And I wanted to kind of, I think I just love to eat as well. So I, I wanted to throw in the taste because I love reading books where you can where you can almost like taste the the neighborhood or taste the community in, in, in a way, just that how important and central it is. Food is also very nurturing. So I wanted to make Khalid in particular, uh, similar to what Sonia was saying about um, subverting these uh, common stereotypes. Khalid is a cook. He loves mm. to cook. And in fact, his mother, who's a very conservative, has very conservative ideas about masculinity, she hates that her son cooks, and he has to do it in secret. He has to hide the fact uh, <laughs> that his uh, that he cooks, and his mother, in fact, is a terrible cook. Uh, and, and that sort of plays into the idea of food being uh, a nurturing source of, in, in people's lives. All right, I'm coming to the end of my time, but I, I want to end this way, uh, Sonia. Have people been reading your books and then finding their way back to Jane Austen, like a reverse trip? <laughs> oh, my God. This is, this. Uh, I have to say, this is one of the biggest surprises I have. I, I never thought in a million years that I would ever hear, ever hear anyone saying that, well, we read Unmarriageable, and then we went and finally read Austen. Well, the first time I heard this, I, I will I will say I burst into tears because this was just so overwhelming. I mean, this is a beloved classic, and to think that Unmarriageable was the gateway into someone reading it, it's just it's it, it's just it's just amazing to me. But but uh, so so yeah, the, the, this has been a wonderful surprise. And and on on that also, I mean, and I'd like to address the food um, in mind. I'm I'm an amateur cook, but um, what I also did with food in the novel was that uh, you mentioned class a little earlier, and class has a lot to do in Pakistan, meaning who has a cook in their house, who's cooking in the kitchen, and as nurturing and stuff as as it can be, it it can also be divisive. And there's one scene in the novel where um, my Charlotte Lucas's mother and um, Mrs. Bennett are basically yelling at each other about who is going to have a more successful marriage, a woman who can cook or a woman who can't cook but knows how to tell her cook what dishes to make. And um, so I use I use that. And then with the books and stuff, there's a lot of post-colonial discussion that goes on in Unmarriageable. And, um, and I wanted to also, by dint of that, connect all the different texts there were in the Western canon and the Eastern canon uh, that people might not be familiar with and how um, they resonate with each other, you know, so there's a lot of book dialogue in here and it, you know, so I've equated stuff like John Khushwant uh, sings Train to Pakistan with John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath and then um, Gloria Naylor's The Women of Brewster Place with Krishan Chander's short story Mahalakshmi Kapoor, Passage to India with Harper Lee's To Kill a Mockingbird, so it was very very important to me as a person who's lived in both cultures and has been nurtured by the literatures of both cultures to make these connections with in these books because you know yes. like, like this is this is Pride and Prejudice set in Pakistan an English novel set in a Pakistani atmosphere and culture and I wanted to pay homage to the books the other books that are able to form these bridges which is so important and, in our world today and you did it so. and um we love it, and I have to leave it there, even though I could go on and on and on because I love the book, and I love your retellings of, of the thank story you. as well. I want to thank, thank so both much. of you for joining me in this conversation. Thank you, Kelly. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me and, and both of us and our books, and, um, and, and this has been wonderful. Thank you. Sonia Kamal is the author of Unmarriageable Pride and Prejudice in Pakistan. Uzma Jalaluddin is the author of Aisha at Last. 
Both books reimagine Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice and collectively are our April selection for Bookmarked, the Under the Radar Book Club. Unmarriageable is available in bookstores and online now. Aisha at Last will be available in the United States in June. That's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at wgbh.org news. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Please write to us at undertheradar at wgbh.org. Our engineers are Doug Sugarts and Bill Piacitelli. Francisca Monahan is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH.